Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for being with us today. Well, we went through yesterday what I think most thoughtful people would say was one of the most somber days, certainly in modern American history, the um, arraignment of a former president of the United States, leading candidate for President Donald Trump on um, a variety of criminal charges, um, including obstruction of justice, espionage. Um, It it was a, a remarkable day, and despite all of the partisan rancor that might have surrounded it, uh, despite some of the circus-like atmosphere that we saw outside the courthouse, um, there's no question that uh, this is a day that will be remembered for a very long time. And um, it's only the beginning of what can unfold in, uh, in, in Florida in, in that federal indictment. And of course, there are other indictments pending, uh, we think, uh, another one in New York City, um, so we're going to talk about the um, what happened in, in Miami yesterday and uh, then move on and talk about response to it here in Georgia. And we have a few other stories we'll pick up on as well. So let's get the ball rolling. Um, my um, Wednesday partner from the AJC, of course, is Greg Lustein, political reporter at the newspaper, also a, an analyst for the NBC News platforms. Greg, thanks for being with us as always today. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Your colleague, Tamar Hallerman, uh, joins us, senior reporter from the AJC. Tamar, you were in Miami. And uh, so we're going to turn to you in just a minute to tell us uh, how you saw things unfold there. You're still down there in South Florida, and I'm very grateful. I know you're going to have to leave us a bit early, but thank you so much for being willing to spend some time with us today. And thanks for letting me get some time in on Wednesday rather than our usual day of Tuesday, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, anytime there's something that has to do with uh, Donald Trump and potential indictments, you're the one we want to have on the show tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tammy, Tammy Greer is with us, political science uh, professor. And uh, Tammy, thank you for agreeing to appear on the show today. Thank you, Bill. There's no shortage of news in the summer. This summer. That's for sure. That's for sure. And last, but by far not least, Alan Abramowitz, now Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Emory University. Alan, you may be in, have the emeritus status now, but there's no question that you're not going to be able to escape talking about and dealing with the extraordinary political news that we continue to go through. No, they're not. They're not going to let me uh, retire peacefully, I'm afraid. <laughs> All right. All right. So um, (laughs) let me start uh, with you, if I could, Tamar. Um, You were at yesterday the um, federal courthouse, the Wilkie D. Ferguson Jr. federal courthouse, and watched how events unfolded. So I'm just going to open the floor and say, tell us what happened yesterday, what you saw, what you reported on. Sure. Well, you mentioned that yesterday was a somber day. And of course it was. Trump is the first former president to be indicted on federal crimes. But somber is not the word I would use to describe the situation outside. Um, Circus-like is a much better one. And I was a little surprised when I arrived in the late morning. Um, It wasn't even circus-like. It was kind of mellow. As somebody who's covered a lot of Trump events, Media outnumbered Trump supporters uh, when I was getting there around noon, like 10 to 1. And I mean, there were Trump supporters milling around and and folks had giant flags, hats, signs. Folks were chanting. Um, But overall, 
pretty calm. As the afternoon went on, security started to ramp up, especially on the side of the building with the garage entrance where Trump um, and his motorcade eventually pulled in. Um, and I did see maybe a dozen counter protesters um, and folks were were starting to talk to, to Trump supporters. But overall, it was pretty came pretty respectful. When things started to get really crazy was when the former president and his motorcade pulled up to the courthouse, which was around 150. Um, helicopters were um, hanging around overhead. Um, I saw SWAT teams move in, Secret Service officers guarding the entrance. There was a man dressed up like an old-timey prisoner in black and white stripes and an old-timey like ball and chain who tried to run into the street. You saw Trump supporters cheering and saying, we want Trump. Um, and that's when it was a real reminder to me about what very well may be to come in downtown Atlanta later this summer, should the Fulton DA decide to indict Donald Trump there. Um, Tamara, you talked to some of the people who were outside the courthouse. Um, one of them was a man uh, identified as Ron. He said to you, it's disgusting what they're doing. China Joe Biden has got all those documents from when he was a senator and they're not going after him. It's a two-tiered system. Another person uh, named Gordon said there shouldn't be any charges, but that's what they do when there's other things happening. When there's other things happening uh, to the other guy, were, were most of the people that you talked to pro-Trump? Did you, did you find there were a number of uh, people who were there because they wanted to see justice for Donald Trump? I would say I saw maybe a dozen people who were um, anti-Trump, who wanted to see him locked up. And they were very visible. I mean, I mentioned the, the guy in the jailbird outfit. There was somebody else dressed like a chicken. Um, and, and some of those people. Um, and they were having exchanges with Trump supporters. But I found that overall, it, it didn't seem like too violent or too contentious. But by far and away, you know, there, there were hundreds of Trump supporters there. And over and over again, you heard things like witch hunt, double standard. Um, they're doing this to distract from what Joe Biden is up to. There's other people like Hillary Clinton or Anthony Fauci who deserve to be locked up before Donald Trump. Um, so it shows that a lot of folks have really inter internalized the narrative that you're hearing from the former president. Greg, uh, in, in New York, when Trump uh, faced arraignment, um, security was heavy. There was an anticipation there could be aggressive, if not violent, um, demonstrations. They didn't happen. It was a rather sleepy event up there. And Tamar describes a similarly um, peaceful uh, gathering outside of the courthouse in Florida. And I can't help but wonder um, why the energy isn't what many people expected it might be among the pro-Trump forces. You know, I had the same question, especially after being at the uh, the uh, Georgia GOP convention and hearing Carrie Lake, the former yeah. Arizona gubernatorial contender, kind of make a big deal about it and say, hey, we'll be there with you. We'll be there in support of you. Uh, and on all your supporters will be there, too, on Tuesday in Miami. See you in Miami. That kind of, that kind of rhetoric. Uh, but it also strikes me is that a lot of what Tamar was hearing in Miami was the same that I was hearing in on the floor of the convention all weekend, that there's a blurring of the lines between Donald Trump's presidential campaign is legal defense. They they can almost be one and the same right now. You know, the rhetoric that you're hearing in the courtroom is the same exact rhetoric you're hearing on the campaign trail. Alan? I would go a little bit further and say that Donald Trump's presidential campaign is his legal defense, uh, or at least it's a key part of his legal defense, because uh, what Trump is hoping is that the fact that he is a presidential candidate um, will uh, make it more difficult uh, for prosecutors to go, to go after him uh, or make them more reluctant to go after him. And this may not turn out to be true. So far, I don't think it's actually happening that way. Um, but certainly the, these two parallel kind of events, are really, it's really kind of remarkable to see them playing out side by side. On the one hand, these multiple uh, indictments and prosecutions which are likely to continue uh, over the next few months, and then the presidential campaign going on at the same time. Uh, but, but I also think that the lack of violence, the, the fact that we didn't see big violent protests either in New York or in, in Miami, is also a reflection of the success that the Justice Department has had in prosecuting 
those who participated violently in, in the January 6th insurrection. And, and I think there's been a significant deterrent effect there uh, and that people now understand. Some of these groups have been broken up and some of the leaders have been, in fact, imprisoned. But there's an understanding now that if you engage in that kind of violent protest, there's a strong chance that you're going to be uh, caught and you're, you're going to be penalized. And uh, and so I think that that is uh, uh, something that is having a, a clear impact right now. Um, that's a fascinating perspective, and it makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that, Alan. Tammy, if I could, um, in turning to you, um, pick up on this notion that Trump's campaign basically is centered around his defense against the criminal charges against him. Um, here's an example of just that. Last night, of course, he flew back to uh, his club in Bedminster, New Jersey, and gave about a 30-minute talk at a rally, a gathering of his supporters. And here's just a little bit of what he had to say at that rally. Political opponent arrested on fake and fabricated charges, threatening me with 400 years in prison for possessing my own presidential papers, which just about every other president has done is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an American court of law. Uh, first of all, Tammy, uh, let's do a fact check. It is not true that other presidents have kept uh, papers that belong to the National Archive, and in fact, to the American people. These are public documents, so that, that's not correct. But, but talk to us about what you heard in those few remarks. He went on for a long time, but that's just a, a, a highlight. So what he just repeated, the former president repeated many of the talking points that come from uh, supporters in the media in particular, um, and, and those that make public comments uh, on behalf of or in support of the former president, um, which, uh, as we've discussed, really has no foundation in fact. Um, and seriousness, uh, if if we can use that word, um, it, it it appears to me that there is a deep unseriousness when it comes to how the former president not only takes um, the the awesome responsibility of being the president of the United States and uh, the subsequent actions after no longer being in office. Um, even when the former president was in office, it appeared to be an unseriousness when it comes to some of the issues that the country faces, like everything is a reality show versus being, um, you know, taking ownership of, of, of being the person out front leading um, the country. When it comes to some of these uh, items, um, those that support the former president appear to be masterful at conflating issues, um, creating confusion um, and misleading the public. Um, it's particularly their supporters when it comes to these particular documents, uh, because I think what is is has been like brushed over so much is that the former president intentionally withheld those documents when he is required by law to turn over those documents. That part is the, I think, the focus. That is the North Star. Not that he had the documents, because as has been shown, other um, officials have had documents, yet the former president has intentionally withheld those documents from those particular entities that he is required by law to return them to. That's the North Star. Um, uh, before we move on uh, from uh, Alan, something that you mentioned, you talked about the conservative uh, media having supported uh, Trump. Um, talk about the split screen that you pointed out to us on Fox News and what the banner headline underneath it said. Well, that's right. So last night, I think this was uh, while Trump was delivering his remarks uh, at Bedminster, uh, we saw in the Fox News covered the, first of all, they covered the, the, the entire speech, which is something that they have not been doing consistently. So now they're back to giving Trump, you know, uh, wall to wall coverage. And yes, there was this, uh, you know, I guess it's called cryon, uh, words like that displayed underneath the picture 
said something to the effect that um, uh, would-be dictator uh, trying to prevent, you know, his uh, political opponent from from running against him. Uh, there we go. Wannabe dictator Wannabe. speaks at the White House after having his political rival arrested. So this was uh, on display on Fox News. When I saw this for the first time, someone sent it to me in an email, and I thought it might be fake because it just seemed too extreme, even even too much for Fox News. But as it turns out, it's not. It it, it was real. Um, and it just shows you how concerned Fox is right now about keeping its hold on its uh, on its audience and its competition, you know, with Newsmax and and these other far right outlets. Just to be clear, uh, the Chiron was a, there was a split screen. Biden was speaking uh, and yes. they split the screen between Biden and Trump, but they kept the audio of Trump up. And so that's what the reference right. to wannabe dictator um, so, uh, yes, yes, clearly. Um, Tamar, um, you know, we're going to have plenty of time to assess this case against Donald Trump, but, but we have to be clear that things are going to unfold very slowly, even under the speedy trial requirement of federal, uh, just the federal justice system. There's a long way to go before this trial is going to get underway, yes? Absolutely. There are many steps, first of which Trump has to solidify his legal team for this particular case. I know that he was at his club in uh, Doral on Monday evening interviewing candidates to to represent him in court the next morning. So he's going to have to find people. Um, they're going to be able uh, eventually to look over the evidence that the Justice Department was able, able to uncover. They'll, they'll be negotiating and fighting the type of evidence that can be admitted into court. Um, so it could take a long time before we see anybody in a courtroom. Just think even in Manhattan, that case, which is much more narrowly tailored, um, we're not going to see a trial until March at least. Or, sorry, it begins in March. Um, but there's a real question about the order of how things will go, especially if Trump mm -hmm. is going to be indicted in multiple jurisdictions, which of course could impact Fonnie Willis here in Fulton County, should she choose to pursue charges against the former president. What do you do if he's wanted for trials in three different U.S. states? And as I've interviewed people about this, I've heard a bevy of different opinions. Um, we heard Tish James, the the AG up in New York, saying it was her understanding that all of this might have to be um, be put on hold for the federal stuff. I, I heard that from a former prosecutor here in Atlanta as well. Uh, but my colleague Bill Rankin actually reached out to Pete Scandalakis, who's the head of the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia, who had his staff research the issue, and he believes that's actually not the case. There's no law that gives the federal government the ability to go for, go uh, first. So all of these cases would be moving forward simultaneously. Um, I guess we'll wait and see. This is obviously a really unprecedented situation. We're talking about a former president of the United States and one who is running for office once again with debates and caucuses and primaries coming up. I don't know what this could look like. Greg, there's got to be some staging. You can't have simultaneous criminal cases against a defendant unfolding, I don't think, at the same time, because I would imagine the defendant has to be in the courtroom. And if he's not in the courtroom, I assume that that gives defense attorneys grounds for objecting uh, to the fact that the person on trial isn't present to deal with the uh, charges. Yeah, talk about a logistics nightmare. And then you throw in the fact that there's a former president involved with all the security and the Trump Force One aircraft and all the other things that, that goes along with that. And what Tamara was referring to was Tish James, the New York Attorney General, who said that in all, in, in quoting her, in all likelihood, she said, I believe that my case, as well as D.A. Bragg and the Georgia case, will unfortunately have to be adjourned pending the outcome of the federal case. So as a civil case that's ongoing. And so it certainly seems like the, her civil case will be temporarily delayed, adjourned, however you want to phrase it. We're not sure about DA Bragg in Manhattan. And we're, we're of course not sure about Fonnie Willis here in Georgia, but what her office indicated in a statement yesterday, they sent in a statement that read, the federal indictments will not have any impact on the Fulton County election investigation. That doesn't mean it won't be delayed. It just it will not have any impact on the actual investigation tomorrow. And I mean, remember that it's going to take a long time, even if D.A. Willis 
moves forward as quickly as possible, securing charges against the former president. It's going to take a long time to argue over evidence and what's allowed, what isn't. There's going to be all sorts of pretrial motions filed by attorneys for various folks. Um, there will very likely be a fight over venue in Georgia if DA Willis is to bring criminal case, whether this is a case that belongs in state court or whether it belongs in the federal court in Atlanta. So a lot of those matters are going to take months and months potentially to resolve. Tomorrow, while you're talking about that, another quick point, because I do know you have to leave us soon. Is it assumed that Judge McBurney, who is over, who oversaw the special grand jury, has heard all the motions that have been made in the case, um, was the one who read the report from the special grand jury, decided what could be made public, what couldn't? Is it assumed that he would preside over a criminal trial should uh, D.A. Willis bring charges, or is that just a rotational thing? No, my understanding is it would go back on the wheel, which, which means the judges literally will like draw straws to see who would ever oversee that. I mean, I I guess anything is possible. I, I wonder if Judge McBurney would want to remain involved in all of this. But my understanding is that once an indictment is is handed down, it's going to be uh, potentially a, or most likely a different judge who who takes over from there. Ellen, how does a Donald Trump run a campaign for president if he is on trial for at least one, if not more, of these charges uh, starting some point early next year? Or as you said, instead of being out on the campaign trail, does Trump use his appearances in these trials as his actual campaign? Well, I think that he will use the uh, judicial proceedings as part of his actual campaign. Uh, what we've seen so far is that anytime Trump is uh, indicted or arraigned, it, it seems to actually uh, reinforce the support that his his uh, you know his his uh, supporters feel the intensity of that support. Um, it's and and we've seen his lead uh, over his nearest rival in the Republican uh, nomination race actually increase, and and so. Um, what we could expect, I think, is, is that he'll continue running and that he will hold intermittent rallies, you know, in events uh, when, when time allows, but that he will try to you know, raise money off of these judicial proceedings, uh, as he has done pretty successfully so far. Uh, and he will rail against, you know, as he has been, rail against the, you know, all the prosecutors and, and portray himself as the victim and, and increasingly sound very much like the character who portrays him on Saturday Night Live. Tomorrow, I'm, I'm going to uh, take a break in a minute and, and uh, honor your uh, need to leave us. But I believe I had read that the event at Bedminster, speaking to what Alan talked about in terms of fundraising, I believe the people in that room uh, were all high-end donors. Trump, obviously, when he puts out email appeals, which happened yesterday, there was even an email appeal that went out while he was in the courtroom uh, hearing the charges against him. But these were high-end donors who paid, I, I read some report that as much as $2 million to be in the room with him. So there's no doubt he is going to raise huge amounts of money. And that's interesting because his fundraising had been pretty anemic earlier in the year. My understanding is that the Trump campaign was hoping to raise about $2 million total from last night's event. But still, oh, okay. high, uh, Spenders. And I mean, there's nothing. Trump has been enormously helped uh, by these big events that I think to any other politician would be catastrophic. But to him has really helped uh, prime the pump for for small dollar donations among his followers. And look, nothing gets people riled up like anger and, and resentment. So it, it's a big moment for that for that. Um, a little birdie told me that one of the people uh at Bedminster yesterday was Bill White, the former head of the, the Buckhead City movement, who uh, who just recently left Atlanta. So um, he's raised, I know, big money for the, the president and has big, been a longtime friend of his. I bet the uh, little Greg birdie Blustein. was Bill White. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Greg, uh, Greg, Greg Bluestein, there have to be a lot of both Republicans and Democrats in Georgia, in the legislature even, who were glad Bill White was in Miami and not Buckhead last night. <laughs> I can hear the governor's chief of staff and his top advisors right now applauding Jamar's comments. So. 
<laughs> All right. We've got to get to a uh, break. Tamar, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We know you've got some reporting to do while you're still in South Florida, and we look forward to the stories that you file for the AJC uh, as you uh, continue your work down there. So thanks, Tamar. Let's take a break. We'll be back with a lot more in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Um, Tammy Greer, Alan Abramowitz, Greg Bluestein, uh, join us. Uh, Greg, uh, there, I think you, among all of the reporters in, uh, who cover the Capitol, um, call the balls and strikes on Kemp uh, pretty regularly with integrity and accuracy. Um, but you manage to always have an opportunity to kind of talk to him, which is, I think, a tribute to the kind of reporter and the fairness they think uh, you uh, show to them. So with that in mind, uh, you have an interesting story uh, in the paper today that didn't come from your reporting, I guess, but from CBS News, um, in which uh, Kemp said that he would support the ticket, meaning Donald Trump, if he is the nominee. Have you had a chance to talk to him about those comments? He is headed to, well, he is in the nation of Georgia now. <laughs> it's for an 11 Oh, he's already Georgia. gone. I won't see him for a little bit. But um, look, I mean, part of my job is also analyzing what he says to other outlets. And A, it's striking he's even talking to national outlets. This is a guy who might have gone on Fox News, but certainly wasn't talking to CBS News a couple of years ago. So that also speaks to his ambitions to raise his profile ahead of 2024. But beyond that, it was a 20 minute interview with Bob Costa. It was a very good interview. Um, but one of the things that, you know, he's asked about the, the indictments and, and the Georgia GOP convention, his decision to skip the convention and all that. But um, he was asked several times on Donald Trump. And, you know, what struck me was that the governor is certainly less restrained about Donald Trump. Now, we, we heard his comments a few days ago about, you know, why are you supporting a murderous dictator in, re- in reference to the former president's praiseful treat, tweet of North Korea's communist leader. Um, but at the same time, you know, he's not going to go take unbridled shots just to take shots. And he had a kind of restrained comment about the indictments. He said it's concerning, but it's a distraction from the issues that really matter. And secondly, he was asked about whether he'd support Donald Trump if he's the eventual nominee, which he's right now the front runner. So it's not a out of the blue question. He said, look, he'll wholeheartedly support the Republican ticket. That, it was interesting. And it was a contrast to what we've seen from other kind of uh, anti-Trump Georgia figures, um, like Jeff Duncan, for instance, who famously last year decided, uh, you know, wrestled publicly about whether even to vote for Herschel Walker. Governor Kemp is at heart a Republican. He's going to vote for a Republican ticket. He might not go out and aggressively campaign for Donald Trump next year, but he will aggressively campaign for Republicans in the legislature and others who are on the ballot, like congressional Republicans and such. And, and, and you know, it basically campaigning for Trump without campaigning for Trump, as I think is a decent way to put it. Uh, Tammy, the actual quote, um, which uh, Greg just referred to, that he gave to Bob Costa, CBS News, was this. Quote, it is concerning, but it's also a distracting. It's distracting from what I think people need to be focused on in the presidential race. And I also think there are a lot of people in the country, including myself, that are concerned about the fairness issue here on federal agencies like the FBI and the Department of Justice. Tammy, there's really an awful lot to unpack in that statement. Uh, Among other things, uh, Kemp is suggesting in the way he framed it that uh, the indictment and arraignment of Donald Trump are just one of the issues in the presidential race, not a matter of significant national interest that a former president is indicted by a federal, uh, by the Department of Justice on criminal charges, Tammy. 
Yeah. Um, so first, um, I, I know that we say this a lot and it's in the media. This is unprecedented what's happening with the former president. Um, but let's be clear that the unprecedented part is a former president not returning documents, uh, not that there is a consequence for you breaking the law. And and that goes back into that no one is above the law, but, and then we like to throw in, you know, the, the whole thing with the former president. I find what's fascinating about um, Governor Kemp's comments is what he didn't say. It's like Karvayaski, where we're filling in the gaps. Um, so he said one thing, um, and then there was this space, and then he moved on. Yet what exactly is he saying? So to say that the charges are concerning, what specifically is the concerning part? Is the concerning part that the former president was charged or the former president's actions or that the former president being charged is unfair, which is the concerning part? And then to throw in the red meat about fairness with the Justice Department, you know, Governor Kemp, you know, we have lots of history concerning fairness with um, the Justice Department and prosecuting individuals inside of the United States. So I find what he didn't say more interesting than the words that he actually chose, because I, it appeared to me that there was an intentional vagueness it's like a specific vagueness so that he is not necessarily in trouble with anyone. And with his um, with the governor's travel, with the word choices he's using, it's what I interpreted from his travel and his words with Bob Costas is this. Brian Kemp understands that the face of a Republican from Georgia is different today than it was in the past, um, or even a Trump Republican, that that is not going to win future elections. A Trump Republican is not going to win future statewide elections um, or even win the state of Georgia in a presidential election. And he is threading that needle. He is moving quickly to be the front leader in what a Republican looks like in an evolving um, former Confederate state. Alan? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think what we're seeing coming from uh, Brian Kemp now is kind of similar in some ways to what we're hearing from some of the other Republican presidential candidates. They're sort of trying to thread the needle here uh, and figure out how, on the one hand, they could communicate the message to the Republican voters that, look, we need to move on. Uh, we need something different, um, that uh, nominating Trump again is just going to lead to another defeat. But on the other hand, they're not willing to come right out and say that Trump's actions were horrific, that he was uh, breaking the law, that he was endangering the national security of the United States, which is true. Um, you know, they're, they're not willing to say that yet. Um, now, maybe at some point they'll be willing to go further. Kemp has actually gone a little bit further than a lot of other Republicans in his criticism uh, of Trump. Um, but as things move on, as as the, we see further indictments um, uh, and, and perhaps eventually trials, uh, maybe we'll see a greater willingness. But for now, at least, uh, I think that's about the most we're going to hear uh, Kemp and some of these other Republicans say in terms of their how far they're willing to go in uh, in criticizing the former president. Look, whatever the governor does, he will also have his eye on not just 2024, but 2028, when he could ostensibly be a presidential candidate himself. And he hasn't ruled it out this cycle, but it's much more likely down the road. And if he is a Republican who who openly opposes whoever the nominee is, it's going to be sort of the death knell for his campaign before it starts. But what he could do is he could be out there and say and say what he's already saying, which is Republicans should focus on issues like the economy, public safety, immigration, you, you name it, rather than the quote, in his words, sour grapes of the past. And that could set him up if Trump is the nominee and loses, it could set him up as one of those voices for the future without um, without without endangering him of of being cast as someone who is a traitor to the GOP cause. Um, Greg, while we're talking about the Bob Costa interview with uh, Governor Kemp, let's talk about another aspect of it. Um, Costa made the point that there's a lot of buzz among some Republicans in some circles 
that two people who ought to be considered, who are not currently in the presidential uh, arena, uh, but who ought to be thought about as possible candidates, are Governor Yonkin of Virginia, who won an election um, in a manner that made national Republicans really look at uh, the issues he picked up on, the themes of his campaign, thought that he's a guy with a great future, and Brian Kemp. And Costa asked Kemp about that. And Greg, Kemp once again gave an answer that could be interpreted in many different ways. Now, I know you believe he's not about to launch a presidential campaign, but it is interesting that he will not close the door. Yeah, and that's how I always framed it. He's very unlikely to run a presidential campaign, but he hasn't ruled it out, right? He hasn't ruled it out, and so that means we can't rule it out. Um, it the, the truth is that the candidates who are running have already have extensive operations. They've been to the early voting state. They have, I'm not saying dozens of, they have hundreds of staffers already out there, and they're already working on clearing those sort of regulatory hurdles to get their names on the ballot. That's a very yeah. labor-intensive process. None of those things, Kemp has started yet, right? Kemp has not started raising national cash. Uh, he, he's been around the nation some. He went to Connecticut not long ago, and um, but he hasn't he hasn't started raising a lot of money. He hasn't started staffing up. His political operation is kind of the same political operation it was just a few months ago. Um, so he hasn't taken any solid steps. Again, that doesn't mean he couldn't run. You know, he he's still being seen by some of these national figures as a break the emergency glass just in case if DeSantis collapse, if if the other non-Trump, you know, sort of anti-Trump candidates collapse, if there's no one who emerges as a as a formidable candidate in the non-Trump lane, Kemp is someone who could just be out there. And so was Glenn Youngkin, who could kind of be that that beacon for those Republicans who want to move the party forward rather than go back to Donald Trump. Alan, right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. But I, I also think that uh, Kemp might be uh, positioning himself as a potential vice presidential nominee for one of the other non-Trump candidates. I mean, certainly Donald Trump isn't going to pick him as a running mate. Um, there's a lot of bad blood between those two. Um, but I could definitely see some other Republican um, who is running uh, against Trump uh, if such a person wins the nomination eventually, um, choosing Brian Kemp uh, or Glenn Youngkin as, as a running mate. Um, now, right now, none of those other candidates look like they have a great chance uh, of beating Trump, frankly. You know, I think DeSantis remains the, uh, by far and away, you know, the, the strongest challenger, and he's pretty far behind. The others are way down in, in single digits uh, in, in the polls. So it's pretty hard right now to envision, you know, anyone else actually defeating Trump in the, in the Republican uh, nomination campaign. Before we get to a break, Tammy, it strikes me there's another reason Brian Kemp uh, leaves the door open when he's asked about this. He clearly wants to increase his na national visibility and his power as a, na as a national Republican. Whether he really will run for president or not, by leaving the door open, he does lay down a marker that says, pay attention to me, Republicans across the country. I'm a player. Right. You know, it's being coy. It's the I'm open to courting um, that's that's going on. And again, his open to courting um, allows for um, not only national leaders, but international leaders to pay attention. Um, I uh, found it very interesting, you know, that the governor is like beefing up his talking points about uh, Georgia having all of these opportunities for electric vehicles and the components for electric vehicles, yet does not mention climate change. I find it very fascinating that he's able to present as a progressive Republican without being a progressive Republican. And so it's comforting for some um, who may be moderate Democrats or conservative Democrats to say, this is that guy and to support, you know, some of these efforts. Um, I do, though, uh, am curious if it's not the presidential election, if it is uh, to be a senator. Um, and if that is the case, then he's like 
putting together all of these different components. So it doesn't look like he's trying when he's actually running for those particular offices. And Greg, I agree with the professor that the most likely for the, the most likely uh, opportunity for the governor is to run against John Ossoff in 2026. And I think a lot of national Democrats and national Republicans think the same. But to your point about the green energy, yeah, you know, it was striking. It's part of uh, not that interview, but another interview he did on Monday uh, when asked about Donald Trump's call to end climate change incentives, green energy incentives. This Georgia, of course, is this hub for green energy right now. And the governor did not disagree with pres former President Trump. He said, basically, yeah, if you want to end them, end them, or you will give them to everyone, give them to everyone, but there should be a level playing field with his argument. So I, I was I was kind of surprised by that one. Well, but Greg, isn't, isn't his response based on the fact that the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, when it put the EV rules in place about automobile electric cars, that they had to be manufactured in the United States to qualify for the $7,500 rebate. And of course, Hyundai, which is going to be a huge presence in the state, won't be uh, manufacturing their EVs in this state for a couple of years yet. That's, that's kind of one of the things he's most concerned about, right? Exactly. This this would give an unfair advantage to uh, other manufacturers who are already up and running in Hyundai, which won't be until 2025 or so, um, would, would be uh, would be hurt by this. All right. Um, we're going to get to back. I one last comment. And I've said it before. I know everybody talks about Kemp running for Senate against Ossoff in 26. I, it strikes me the only value for doing that would be if you're then positioning yourself to run for president in 28. Because as I've said on this show, governors who become United States senators are often really miserable because they're no longer in charge. So we'll see how that all plays out. This is Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Quick programming note, we obviously have been intensely focused on the politics around Donald Trump and his indictment, how Georgians, uh, Georgians are reacting to it. Uh, tomorrow and Friday, we're going to get away just a little bit from it. Give our listeners, all of you out there, a little bit something that we think is important and thought-provoking. Tomorrow, Kevin Riley and I are going to spend the hour talking with Rene Alegria, the CEO of Mundo Hispanico, one of the major players, not just in Georgia, but nationally in his understanding of the Hispanic, the Latino community. Um, Rene, who you've heard as a panelist on this show, punctures many of the stereotypes and myths that we think about when we think of that community. He's also had himself a remarkable career. So tomorrow, Rene Alegria in our series of uh, shows about thought leaders in Georgia. And then Friday, because I never get too far from my theater uh, roots, we're going to pick up on the fact that at the Tony Awards Sunday night, the musical Parade which tells the story of Leo Frank, um, won a Tony for Best Revival of a Musical. The Leo Frank story is one of the greatest, I think, travesties of justice. Um, a, a Jewish businessman lynched for a murder he most likely did not commit. And so Friday, we're going to talk about that with the um, now Rabbi Emeritus of the Temple, Alvin Sugarman, um, the temple was the synagogue that Leo Frank's family attended back in the early 20th century. And we'll actually play a couple songs from the show and talk to Rabbi Sugarman uh, about the Leo Frank case. So that's coming up on Thursday and Friday on Political Rewind. All right, Greg, with the time we have remaining, I, I, this is a little complicated, but I think we can get to the meat of it. Um, as a result of Kevin, of Kevin McCarthy, the speaker giving in on the debt ceiling compromise and not uh, insisting on cuts that the far-right Freedom Caucus in the House wanted. For a number of days, members of that caucus put a freeze on any action on voting 
in the U.S. House. One of the people who is part of that far-right Freedom Caucus, but who in fact believes he was hurt by that action, was Andrew Clyde. Andrew Clyde has a measure uh, to uh, uh, remove regulations from what are called pistol braces, which are devices that stabilize a pistol and essentially turn it in to almost a a, a rifle-like weapon. The, The freeze was lifted temporarily and largely because the House wanted to vote on this Andrew Clyde bill, which has no chance in the Senate, but it did pass in the House yesterday. And at the same time, Lucy McBath is looking for a way to bypass Republicans to get a gun control measure on the floor. So with the time we have left, let's just talk a little about those two elements. Yeah, talk about contrasting positions, one for gun control, one for wildly expanding the Second Amendment rights around the nation. But Andrew Clyde has become one of the most fascinating Republicans to watch, not just in Georgia, but around the nation. He's the second term Republican. He's a gun store owner from the Athens area, won a, a Northeast Georgia seat a couple of years back and is now one of the leaders of this far right faction who essentially held the U.S. House hostage earlier uh, in the last couple of days. Um, you know, saying that they won't let any legislation pass until their brand of conservative legislation passes. So the bill you just mentioned on pistol braces was among those measures. Another one that would prevent the government from regulating gas stoves. It's become a hot button issue in conservative media Um, and a resolution calling on Russia uh, to release the imprisoned Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, which is bipartisan and supported by 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 pretty much every lawmaker um, or all lawmakers, I hope. Um, so those were some of the measures that were that were adopted. But yeah, this shows you the power of a small group of ultra conservative members can have in this narrowly divided chamber with a leader, a speaker who does not have control over his own caucus. Alan. Yeah, this was quite an extraordinary uh, action that they took here. Uh, because it involved a uh, a small group of far-right Republicans voting against the rule um, to uh, bring a bill to the floor. Um, and, and this is a, a violation of uh, what's considered, you know, a, a very fundamental uh, uh, kind of understanding of the way political parties operate in the House of Representatives, in that if you are a member um, of the majority party, actually a member of either party, you are, you know, no matter what your you your ultimate vote is on the substance of a piece of legislation, you are expected to support your party's position when it comes to the rule, uh, and, and which is the uh, uh, specifies, you know, the uh, procedures that will be used uh, to consider to debate a bill on the floor. That is uh, a very it's a, almost always a straight party line vote for and against. Uh, and this was a break with that, and it sort and it ground the house to a halt um, for several days, and it may come back again. Um, so we have this, you know, short-term kind of uh, understanding to get get past this, um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see this happen yet again. I think that's an important point. The Freedom Caucus has not said that they are uh, now lifting their uh, efforts to stop votes from the floor permanently. They're, they basically said, we'll put it back in place anytime we feel mm-hmm. we need to. Tammy, meanwhile, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Co- Congresswoman Lucy McBath, who we all, I think, know, lost a son tragically in a gun, in a shooting incident, a horrible incident in Florida. She's looking now, she knows that Republicans who hold the majority in the U.S. House are not going to bring forward any kind of gun safety, gun control measures. But she's looking to see if she can build a majority for a what's called a discharge position, uh, a discharge petition to uh, allow a couple of gun control measures to come to the floor. But that's going to need some Republican votes as well as hopefully every Democrat, she hopes. Uh, So it's a long shot. But as Greg points out, it's fascinating to have these two contrasting positions uh, among a couple of Georgia members of the House. So the beauty of this republic we call the United States is that the majority rules, yet minority has rights. And what Lucy McBath is doing, uh, along with the conservatives in 
the Freedom Caucus on the Republican side is the minority are using um, spaces where they are able to um, invoke themselves as saying, hold on, majority, this, these items are important as well. Um, using the discharge pe uh, petition, fantastic. Um, this is what strategy looks like. And as you said, Bill, if all of the Democrats go along with this discharge petition, McBath only needs five uh, on the Republican side in order to get that. So there are, regardless of the loudest voices on the Republican side, there are some moderate um, Republicans in the House who also understand the importance of, um, of gun safety. So if Big Bath can pick off five, then there you have it. You can bring it to the floor. And if you have uh, five Republicans and all the Democrats to say yes, you can get it passed. Ellen, a quick comment yeah. from you. Just, just a quick comment on the discharge petition. Um, it's, it's rarely been used successfully. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. very unlikely to be successful in this case, in my opinion, because while there are probably enough Republicans there, you know, who would ultimately support that type of legislation, uh, maybe, you know, it doesn't take many, given the narrow majority, they're not going to sign a discharge petition because they would be regarded, again, as, as violating a fundamental norm uh, of the House and the way political parties uh, operate there. And they would really make, put themselves in a, in a bad position within the party. Okay, thank you for that. Greg, before we completely run out of time, you've already mentioned it. Governor Kemp on the move again. He's in the country of Georgia. He's going to the Paris Air Show uh, next, which is important. Delta Airlines is a big presence there, of course. Uh, but there he is, overseas once more, Greg. And Gulfstream, and this is his third overseas ah. trip since winning re-election. So he's definitely trying to raise his, not just national profile, yeah. but international profile. Yeah, maybe he wants to be Secretary of State under the next Republican president. Who knows? <laughs> All right. We are completely out of time. Greg Bluestein, Alan Abramowitz, Tammy Greer, you have proven once again that on Political Rewind, we really believe in and have smart, smart conversations. Thank you so much for being here. We'll be back again with a brand new show tomorrow. I'm Bill Nigat. Take care, stay healthy, and please be good to one another. Bye, everybody.